millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The New Statesman. <laughs> Southend Central, calling at West Ham, Barking, Upminster, Ockhamden, Chafford Hundred, Grays, Tilbury Town, East Tilbury, Stamford Lahoe. I've just left Fenchurch Street Station and I'm headed for Grays Town Centre in the borough of Thurrock, Essex. Now, we're recording this episode of Westminster Reimagined here because it's a borough which is suffering major cuts to all its council services after it went effectively bankrupt last December. Hundreds of millions of pounds were put into risky investments that didn't pay off. It's a symptom of austerity, which included major local authority cuts since 2010, as well as poor management. But what really caught my eye when I went to report from Greys back in August were the cuts to a place called Thameside, an arts complex, described locally as a mini Barbican, which houses a theatre, library, archive and museum. It got me thinking about something Armando and I have been discussing a while while planning this series. What happened to the good life and happiness and the things that make our lives enriching in UK politics? Why is everything seen through the lens of a balance book rather than what is best for our long-term well-being and joy? We've just arrived outside the Thames side and just to bring it to life for our listeners, it's a very concrete building with um, sort of brickwork on the side. You can kind of see why they call it a mini Barbican because the concrete really does dominate. And you can see adverts on the outside of it for Black History Month and the Panto, Jack and the Beanstalk and Aladdin as well. So you can see that some of the culture is still going on inside, but the outdoor cafe terrace, there's no chairs or plant pots on there anymore because the cafe closed in 2020 and it hasn't reopened and we'll find out more when we go inside I'm joined now by Sam Byrne a Thurrock local and part of the Save Your Thameside campaign and Neil Woodbridge chief executive of the social enterprise Thurrock Lifestyle Solutions which is based in this building and it's an organization which supports people with learning disabilities living in greys and joining us down the line from LSE, we have Professor Richard Layard, economist, author, Labour peer and co-editor of the World Happiness Report, which ranks countries according to how happy they are, also known as New Labour's Happiness Czar when he advised Tony Blair's government. Today, we're here to discuss the good life. How much value do we put on happiness in Britain? How can government policy boost happiness? And is it possible to quantify personal well-being? 
Places like Thameside often serve as the heart and soul of our communities. They bring people together, foster a sense of belonging and contribute to our overall well-being. But what happens when these vital services face budget cuts? Today, government funding cuts are an unfortunate reality across the country. Often, the decision to cut funding for community services is made as part of a broader policy agenda. And in the case of Thurrock Council's funding, this is something we'll revisit later on in the conversation. But what's the impact on our communities when these centres are forced to close their doors? So, Sam, I mean, we spoke in August when I first read about the story of Thameside's um, potential closure. Why are you fighting to save it? Um, Because it's such a massive part of our community. I mean, we're talking about the Thameside complex as a whole. Um, And we've got the library, we've got the museum, it's, um, you know, our education, our heritage, we have the theatre, and there's so many other things that go on in this building. It really is a beacon at the middle of Thurrock for arts and culture, and we must, we must stop them from closing it. And why, Neil, do you think this is something that the council has had its eye on? Why are these kind of things seen seen as somehow inessential, the first things to go? I think there's a problem in so much as the council assumes that there are essential services such as your bin collection, but they don't understand that arts and culture really are what defines people's happiness ultimately and can support people in coming together and the sense of well-being that happens in the community. And Sam, actually, when we spoke, it was interesting because I asked you about other things that were being cut and sort of other costs that were going up in the community. Council tax has risen already by 10%. And you mentioned the bins as well, but you didn't want to focus on that. You no. Know, you wanted to talk about Thameside. Absolutely. And I thought that was really interesting because, you know, we have this kind of balance sheet culture in this country, don't we, where it's people are moving things around in a spreadsheet and, and the things that perhaps are most important to people's lives are the first things that get dropped. So why is it this, you know, why is this the beacon of, the, of, of your campaign? Um, because it represents everything about this community. I mean, this community in Thurrock is, you know, a proud, hardworking community and everything is being taken away from them. Um, arts and culture are so incredibly important. I think that potentially the current, you know, councillors and, and the council think that it's an easy cut to get rid of this, but it represents so much and actually gives such super benefit to the community from, you know, babes in arms right through to octogenarians that we've had come here for various events and various, it's not just about the theatre. There's so much more that goes on and it's all about bringing community together. It's about community and what it means and the longevity of the impact of taking something like this away from us is very short-sighted if you're going to get rid of it. And tell me what it brings to people, because your own daughter has benefited from coming here as a child. We've just heard some children doing a Hamlet musical down yeah. the corridor, rehearsals for that. People go on to be in the arts. Um, and for absolutely. children in Thurrock, that's not necessarily a given. No, absolutely. Right. And I think that that's, that, that's absolutely right. Lots of people have performed on this stage that are now performing in the West End and across Europe. But it's not just about giving children well, every part of our community, but certainly if you look at young children, that opportunity to spark somebody's imagination. And it doesn't matter if you, you know, what career path you take, but actually the skills that you learn being within your community in a nurturing environment, um, getting on a stage, you know, we've been to many shows, Neil, haven't we? And we've seen six-year-olds who get up and sing a song on that stage in front of 300 people. And actually, whatever path you take in life, those skills that you're going to learn there, presentation at college, um, you know, in the workplace, whatever you decide, or if you go on to 
decide to work within the creative industries. It's a great start. And that's, we mustn't lose that. I think too often um, authorities have thought, this kid's from Thorough, doesn't matter, does it? They're going to go and work in a factory or go and move out of the borough and live in London. So we don't really need to invest in them, but they're missing the point totally because you're talking about well-being. We're so aware of mental health and, you know, thank goodness nowadays. This is all part and parcel of it. Plus, it's bringing the community together. Yeah. And Neil, what's the fight been like to try and keep these services open? I know that you used to have, you know, a standalone youth arts organisation. That's closed. Um, you used to have the Royal Opera House come and do performances here. That's been cut. Do you feel like things are being slowly whittled away, the things that bring joy to the people in this area? I do. And I think there's a problem in so much as the council really don't understand that people are, they don't need to be served as such by the council, but they need to be supported to take control for themselves. And that's the whole premise of what we're trying to do here. We're trying to enable the, the people to say, actually, it's your taxes over the years that have paid for this building. It's already yours. You can take it over and run it for your purpose, for by the people, for the people. And I think the council then takes a back seat in that. And up to now, there's been a bit of a thing where it, the council is somehow in control, the mighty council. But actually, since their £1 billion debt, et cetera, and the terrible things that have happened here, the reality is, is that people are saying, well, actually, maybe we could do this better. So, for example, at the weekend, there was a big problem with some roadworks in one of the little villages around here called East Tilbury. And the council were just not listening to the fact that the road barriers were causing a big problem on a certain road. And over the weekend, someone removed them. And actually, they were fine. The, the, the people could move about. You know, that was absolutely fine. There's a bus service being cut. So we have worse bus service than exists in the Outer Hebrides. Wow. And let's just think about this. We're within half an hour of London and you can't get a bus. So when they stop that bus to that village, what some of the people did is they've written their own report suggesting the route that it could take, where the money would come from. And it makes more sense than what the council are doing, but they're just stopping that bus service because it saves money. Wow. Well, it's interesting what you say about the public reaction, because we were just talking to someone who's worked here on and off since he was 15, and yeah. he was saying he'd never seen such a public backlash to the decision that absolutely. this place is surplus to requirement. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've had four protests, actually, peaceful protests, and they've been incredible and they've grown every time. The last one we had in November last year outside the council offices, um, where a decision was going to be made on this building. So we had a big protest outside. It was incredible. As I say, people from across our community singing, making their own placards, you know, it was an incredible event. We had uh, Bloomberg there. We had the BBC. We had the ITV. It was incredible. This is thorough. These things don't happen here. But part of our campaign and part of our slogan is find your voice. That night, come together together as one community and find your voice. Because if you're not happy, you need to speak up. If we think what's going on is wrong, you need to speak up. They're going to take something away from you that means a lot. We need to speak up. And absolutely, the community came out and said, and, and people came up to me after our second protest, actually, who weren't involved in the protest and didn't actually know what was going on and said, this is incredible what's going on. And I said, well, actually, we're protesting because we want to save you, you know, your Thames side and we're this is amazing. I've never seen people protesting in, in Thorup before. And this is, it was overwhelming because you saw the community coming together and it, very, very special. And what we can't lose. And do you think, do you think that's why, Neil? Do you think it's just because it, it's that one step too far for the people of Thorup to take away something like this? I believe it is. I mean, there's a reality that the people of Thorup, as I told you earlier, there's something called the Thorup Shrug, where they've just accepted things done to them. And what they actually realised, I think, lots of the children that I spoke to there, I was talking to them about maybe you could become a councillor one time. Maybe you could stand for election. In a democracy, you can stand up and your voice can be heard. And that's what we're saying to you here. 
And they were actually, lots of those young people, I think, will remember that as their first ever protest, that actually things don't have to be done this way. So I just mentioned the bus cuts, for example. Well, recently I, I did a, a visit to Dunkirk. It's a long story. It was in memory of my granddad who escaped from there years ago in the, uh, in the war. So I went to Dunkirk. I sailed to Dunkirk with a friend who took me on his boat. I had a fantastic time, but we had to get a taxi. And we were talking about buses. And we said, well, there, there seems to be, you know, quite regular bus service here and they look very modern buses. What's the deal? And, and the woman, the taxi driver, my French is awful. I won't try and repeat it. But the taxi driver basically said, they're free. So you don't have to pay a single fare on a bus. And of course, being English, I was going, that's amazing. What the council don't pay for the buses? And she said, in French, she said, what you need is a revolution. <laughs> and so does Thurrock. Absolutely. Peaceful. Yes, yes, yes. Let's not incite no, a revolution. Not at all. Um, Peaceful protest. <laughs> Richard, I want to bring you in here because you've been patiently listening to this conversation. Um, That's you, very interesting. Yes. And you, we, uh, we want a well-being revolution. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. Yes. yes. You, you heard it here first. Um, could you briefly flesh out, first of all, so that we understand the work that you do, um, what the World Happiness Report does? Well, the World Happiness Report is an amazing survey of well-being in every country in the world, um, conducted actually by Gallup. Uh, and the question is, essentially, how satisfied are you with your life? And this simple question gives really very, very meaningful answers. For example, it's one of the best predictors of when you're going to die uh, or your productivity, uh, or how you will vote, whether you will vote for the uh, existing government. So we are very, very keen that this question become the concept that we have of how our society is progressing, our people becoming more satisfied with their lives. And also, uh, it should be the criterion for government. If the government policies, uh, are they the best to help people to have lives which are satisfying, fulfilling, and enjoyable? So from this survey, of course, you see which countries do well, especially the Scandinavian countries do very well. They uh, probably don't have to close their museums and libraries because uh, they accept a, a higher tax rate as part of their civic participation. They give in order to receive. Yes. And in your most recent book, Wellbeing, you break down the concept into seven subcategories, physical health, mental health, family and social relationships, work, income, physical environment, good government, values and genes. Would it be fair to say that having a government that prioritises individual well-being could influence most of these? It would influence all of those. But of course, the, the basic thing which follows from what I just said is that we should judge everything, including some things you didn't mention, like road building, for example. Um, we should judge these things against the standard of how much they contribute to people's well-being. And, you know, there are genuine questions to be asked. Uh, there's always shortage of money. Would we do better to spend a bit more of that money uh, on child mental health uh, or on uh, an, an, another road? These are the questions which should be at the heart of government. And I'm very pleased uh, that Keir Starmer has said that he wants policies to be judged by their effects on well-being as well as on income. I think it's a very, very important statement that will help us uh, to move towards the well-being revolution uh, is that becomes the way in which uh, politicians think and civil servants uh, do their work 
And that's the purpose of government, to improve the well-being of the people. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Talking of Keir Starmer, leader of the Labour Party, it really struck me that in his speech to the most recent annual conference for the party, he actually mentioned how cost of living crisis and other such things have been whittling away at the joy in life. So he mentioned going fishing or spending quiet time with your family. And it struck me because I've, it's been a long time since I've heard a prominent politician in the UK talk in those terms. And I wonder if you agree with me, Richard, do you think it's sort of fallen a bit out of fashion talking about happiness? I know David Cameron actually, you know, flirted with the idea of measuring well-being. Well, it's the basic, the most important idea that has defined um, the modern age uh, you know, in the Middle Ages, you were seeking happiness in the next world. And in the 18th century, people dared to say, no, what we want is happiness in this world. And we want a society uh, in which people contribute to the happiness uh, of other people and themselves. And we judge the society uh, by how happy the people in it are. So it, it's sort of an idea which comes and goes. It's a, it's a, ba- a basic central idea um, in, in modern Western civilization, uh, what, what has made it uh, so much more feasible as an objective is the new science of well-being, which has developed over the last 30 or 40 years. So we know so much more of how important different things are to people's happiness. And of course, the ranking that you get from the study of the science of happiness is very similar, actually, to if you ask people questions about what are the things that you most worry about in your daily life. It's always first the, the health and mental health, physical health of, of, of your, your family uh, is always first, and your social relationships, especially at work and in the family, and then your income. Uh, so it's really important that when we're thinking about social services, we're thinking about community, um, as our friends have just been saying, is a very important part of our system of relationships. Uh, And we need to give it proper weight uh, when we're thinking about uh, priorities for public expenditure. But as I say, there is something very odd going on in our country um, about our attitude to taxation, uh, quite different from in Scandinavian countries. The fact is that as we become richer, the, the crucial need for income becomes less extreme relative to uh, the things which we value, uh, as I said, so highly, namely uh, health and mental health and uh, our relationships, including in the community. So uh, we, we've got to stop saying it's shocking that, that our tax share is the highest it's ever been. Of course, um, our, our general living standard is as high as it's ever been. And that means that increasingly uh, we should want to be buying the things that require public money 
uh, like community services. So uh, I would I would say that that is the the crucial new debate. Uh, it's not easy to have it before an election, but I mean, you certainly need to have it after an election. Absolutely. And I wonder, did you come across any of that frustration when you were advising the new Labour government? Um, you know, obviously it was a different economic context, but still the preoccupations with, you know, what what should be spent, how much should be taxed, balancing the books, that kind of accountant mindset is still very much there in the Treasury over the years. Yes, but I think that well, uh, something has changed in the Treasury, which is actually very important. Uh, and there's something called the Green Book, which is the rules that uh, departments have to follow when making a case for spending money. And that now includes impacts on well-being, which it hasn't until recently. So I think we're seeing, because of the science of well-being, which is becoming known in the civil service, we are seeing uh, a change in approach, uh, which I think needs to be developed further you know, under the next government. But uh, we, 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 shouldn't, we shouldn't think of, of, of the civil servants as a, as a block. I, I think we can, we can get the civil service to do what is, is uh, in Labour's policies if we come to power, and that is to put the people, uh, people's well-being absolutely at the top. Thank you. And I want to bring Sam and Neil back in here. I wonder if you take any encouragement, actually, from what Richard's been saying. Yes, we are at this odd juncture in our politics at the moment in terms of constant talk about the tax burden, etc. But again, you know, he spoke about the progress that has been made and the and the actual acknowledgement of well-being within the civil service. So is that something that encourages you, Sam? It does. And that needs to filter through to local councils and to local areas as well. I totally agree um, with everything that Richard said. And, you know, for us, with our battle that we have here, if you're talking about the Thames, it is about a culture. It is for everybody, every part of our community. So many skills are learned from the community, from being together, from growing together. Um, you know, I'm a theatre buff, so that's my love. Um, and I have been since a child. Um, but that's, that's in our DNA. You know, as human beings, that's what we need and it brings everybody together. So I think that's perfect. I think that what Richard was saying is absolutely true as well. You're talking about infrastructure and that's what we're lacking. And that's, I think, sounds from what Richard's saying, very promising that we need to rebuild that infrastructure um, that I think we did have, you know, many years ago, but that's been taken away because it's about budgets, about bottom lines, about, you know, take, 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 cut, cut, cut. Um, and we're not left with very much. And obviously our battle here is to save this building for our community, for it to be run for the community, by the community. Um, so I think, I think that's very important for all of us. And I, I, did, you know, I think people are very much more aware, obviously, after COVID and the recent years about um, mental well-being, you know, mental health. Um, and I, I find that very uplifting too, because we're all becoming more socially aware beings. And that's really, really important for our communities to, to survive. You know, we kind of think of the country, and I know we're talking about Keir Starmer and, and politics, et cetera, but you've got to come right down to the basics. And this is where our communities begin and where we live, where the children come out of that. Can I say that I think that uh, the, the idea that you just put, social infrastructure, is an incredibly important phrase in this discussion mm -hmm. because yeah. it's so easy for people to build buildings and roads and uh, things you can touch. 
But it's a social infrastructure which has such a huge impact on how people actually feel day to day in their lives. Absolutely. And I think that's been lost recently. It was lost for a number of years and we need to build on that. For us as a social enterprise, one of the things we talk about is we describe community as an experience, not a location. That's what we teach people. And part of that as well is we talk a lot about uh, moving people from passive recipients of care to active citizens in control. And that's the different relationship we want people to have with local government and central government. I'm not a receiver of your goods. I'm actually an active citizen in control. And we teach that to people with learned disabilities. And we teach everyone that it's actually about people and purpose. What's your connection to people and what's your purpose? And the arts and culture bring us together. And together we become strong and we can have a well-being experience. Interestingly, Richard, my my question to you is, is the Z generation. I've been interviewing people for probably, scarily, 35 years now. And the generation that are coming through now, we can't pay massive wages, which is the care profession. It's just what it is. But there's lots of questions always into about how we support people with their mental health. What do we do about people's well-being? Because it seems to me that people are developing, the younger generation, the Z generation in particular, are saying, I'm not going to work for you. I'm not going to stay here and be here for you unless your values and beliefs are the same as mine, which features well-being. I think it's, it's wonderful that you are starting off with the question of what is your purpose? Because, I mean, going back to this fundamental philosophical question, you know, it's the best state of the world is one where people are enjoying their life and are happy. Uh, our moral obligation is obviously to try and produce the best state of the world, which is to create happiness. I mean, we should, your, your, your purpose in life should be to be a creator of happiness for others, especially, but also for yourself, through, especially through helping other people. And uh, I think unless we can somehow get away from this terrible philosophy that your purpose in life is to be more successful than other people, which is something which can't be increased. Um, the amount of success can't be increased every, for everyone um, who uh, you know, arises, somebody else has to fall in that uh, scheme of things. Get to a positive sum uh, philosophy where you get your happiness from making other people happier and, uh, and that, so, so we all progress together. I think that that is completely essential. Well, I'm so glad you mentioned that, Richard, because it brings me on to the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is often from our politicians, what you hear is this preoccupation with what you just mentioned, social mobility. Um, Economic inactivity is a big thing that they're preoccupied with at the moment. People who are out of work could be working. And productivity, that's something that we hear a lot about. You know, this could increase productivity. But we rarely hear, other than that snippet from the Starmer speech that I mentioned earlier in the conversation, them talk about um, what, what the purpose that we've just been talking about, the real things that people value in life. And I, I wonder, Sam and Neil, I know you're talking in a local context, but I wonder if you'd like to hear a bit more of that from the people who are making these policies that ultimately, you know, influence the policy environment that your council is operating. Yeah, I'd like that to be a two-way street. I'd like to hear more from the top and I'd like them to listen. As something, Neil, I'm going to take his Celia's line now, this brilliant line. Um, we've got two ears and one mouth. And that's the right, what do you say? That's the right ratio. I was born with two ears and one mouth for a reason. We need to listen more than we speak. Yeah. So, and that's, so again, that's a two-way street. So yes, I do want, I'm desperate to hear more from above. I want that to filter down, but I also want from the grassroots for it to come up to, to for people to listen, to reach out, to listen. Communities aren't built like that. Communities aren't built out of money. They are built from people. And, and that's really, really important. So that's definitely a two-way street, I think. This is 
sometimes referred to by politicians. Um, I think we, we know but they do talk about civic virtue. Uh, they, they do talk about uh, rights implying responsibility. Somebody, somebody has a right. Somebody's got to be responsible for providing it. Um, and uh, if I could do a bit of advertising, I think civic organizations, including one which I'm involved with called Action for Happiness, have an incredibly important role in spreading the idea that your purpose is to practice civic virtue. Um, Richard, as I mentioned earlier, it's been 10 years since the first World Happiness Report was published. What kind of progress have you seen in this time, particularly in the context of Britain? I mean, I, I feel like we often hear of phrases like crumbling Britain and um, broken Britain, since, particularly since the austerity years. Um, but then you've said that there's been some progress as well. So, you know, are things getting better or worse here? Well, some better and some worse, isn't it? I mean, all our public services are struggling at the moment. Um, not just the NHS, but schools, the, the courts, the prison, the struggle um, everywhere. Um, I think that you know we're still paying the price of austerity, and, and that, that 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 is very sad. Um, the worst thing actually is hardly ever talked about, um, which is what's happened to our young people who don't go to university. Further education uh, beyond eighteen is 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 a half of what it was. Uh, apprenticeships um, are uh, way down from their previous peak. And um, I think a, a new deal for young people who don't go to university is, is, is one of the most obvious things which is, is needed. So all, all of those are, are problem areas. I think there are a lot of positive things going on, though. Um, I, I think people, uh, individuals, are becoming much more psychologically aware. Um, many of them are adopting practices to improve their own mental well-being, mindfulness, yoga, etc. Um, I think people are more tolerant, they're more open. If you actually look at the Office of National Statistics surveys of whether people say they're satisfied with their lives, which started in 2011, which was admittedly a rather low year, just after the financial crash. But those answers improved steadily uh, up till the COVID pandemic. I don't think it's right to uh, say that sort of life in Britain has sort of deteriorated in, in some fundamental way. I think our social services um, have been suffering and uh, people have suffered as a result of that. But other good things have happened. Yes, I think that's a, a, a really good outline. Um, and Sam and Neil, before I let you go, um, Thameside is still open. There's still stuff going Thameside on in Thameside is still open. In fact, I'm coming here to see 39 Steps tonight in the theatre because it's their opening night and it runs for the next three or four days. So, yeah, so there's lots lots going on here. You met Daryl earlier with arts, you know, arts outbursts and arts creation. Um, you know, there's lots going on. But we fought incredibly hard from that. As I said to you before, they shut the doors after COVID and they put a sign on saying, ring this number if you wanted somebody to come to the front door. This is a public building. Um, they shut the cafe. It was bustling, young mums, you know, that probably stuck inside four walls with a little baby, got the opportunity to come and have a cup, a cup of coffee and talk to other mums. It's a lifeline for many, many people. Yeah. Um, we've got lots of organisations, Neil included, is, is, is based within the building. Uh, there's the library, there's the museum, but we have to keep continuing to fight um, to save this place for the community because it 
what it represents and, and what it means to so many people. The wellbeing revolution starts here. Right in <laughs> Thurrock. Thank you. heard it uh, here first. <laughs> Thank you very much, everyone. This was a really excellent conversation. I really enjoyed all of your insights. Thanks for your time. I'm back here in the New Statesman studio with Armando, who's actually been uh, working on a different play, separate from our friends at the Thames side, okay. uh, which yes. is why you couldn't join us. Which is us. why, you know, scheduling class and also yes. cuts means that um, we could only afford one train ticket. To yeah, that, absolutely. So. Yeah. Austerity um, at the New Statesman. <laughs> um, fascinating. And I'm sorry I wasn't there because my whole bugbear for ages has been, why do we look down on things like culture, yeah. well-being, uh, the arts, uh, the creative industries in the UK, as I keep banging on about, generates more money for the British economy than the oil industry and the car industry put together. So we should be celebrating it. And yet here we are again, seeing people have to fight uh, to save it. It's always the first on the list that things that gets cut. And I think the interesting thing that was thrown up there was actually, as they all said, it does. It do, Obviously, it you know, the better, the more well-being you have, the more you feel good about yourself and about your community. Actually, it does affect the economy. It does affect productivity. You know, if you feel better about yourself, then you feel more positive about how you work and what work you do and, and the hours you put in and, and the satisfaction you get from it. And I don't think enough people have actually got, gone and quantified economically yeah. <laughs> what feeling good actually does for us and does, does for society. Yeah, and I think there's been sort of attempts over the years. It's one of those perennial things that keeps coming back. I think mm. David Cameron talked about happiness index. Yeah. Um, you know, the Scottish government tries yeah. to measure well-being in yeah. that way, but it never seems to supersede GDP in terms of what's most important. Yes, and, and as you kept referring to, you know, the accountancy culture that yes. now is in that all of politics has now been reduced to, you know, a balance sheet. Yeah. And obviously, healthy um, resources is always important. But the fact that that has now become the be-all and end-all um, is, I think, you know, it is a subjective judgment that has been taken. And, and it's actually one that is promulgated by the media as well, yeah. in that, you know, it will be the political correspondent who looks at the budget implications and, and, and business leaders, you know, on the Today programme are not really challenged as in... You know, are you any good at your job? Yeah, exactly. You'll have city you'll have city economists on who have yeah. a certain view of what the economy should be. Yeah. But you don't have, you know, I mean, it, I thought it was interesting that in Thurrock, since it's gone bankrupt, council tax has gone up 10%. The bins are emptied far, far less often. And there's going to be all sorts of other cuts and charges, like parking yeah. charges will go up. Um, but what the community has been most affected by is the idea that Thameside could close. So it's it's clear that, you know, while there are immediate day-to-day -day budgetary issues for people from the cuts to their council, it is these things that make life a little brighter that matter the most. And um, as, as we've been charting across uh, not just this series, but, but previous ones there has been a pattern of national government yeah. cooking the book slightly by clearing their desks of certain responsibilities and giving them to local councils and regional government yeah. who can't afford it. So regional councils are given more and more statutory obligations on social care and mental health and so on that they can't fulfil because their budgets have been cut and therefore are forced into making these uh, other decisions which significantly impact on people's lives. Yeah. And actually, we bumped into someone who's worked on and off at Thameside 
since the age of 15, Daryl Branch. He's the director of Arts Outburst, which is a community arts organisation. He couldn't speak to us on the podcast because he was rehearsing with these young people who were doing Hamlet the Musical. They were about to take it uh, to Italy. They sounded amazing, so we thought we'd stick around and record some of their singing. listening to Westminster Reimagined, a bonus series on the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and our special guest host, Armando Iannucci. Join us for the next episode of Westminster Reimagined, which will also be the last in the series, when Armando and I ask, is our system of political reporting fair and accurate? And what does this mean going into a general election? If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and don't forget to subscribe. This episode was produced by Catherine Hughes. Our executive producer is Chris Stone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50-80% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.